Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. All right, good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. This is the second part of a three-part mini-series on this uh, particular passage called Premises and Promises as we make our, through, our way through uh, the book of Romans. Last week, we established that we can trust the Lord with our whole lives, that we can put all of our lives in the palm of our hands, and we can say, yes, Lord, before we even know what the request is. Before he even stipulates what he asks us to do, we can say, yes, Lord, because he is trustworthy, he is faithful, and great is, his, great is thy faithfulness. Today, we're going to be looking at the second premise. Next week, we'll look at the, the third in verses 35 through 39. But today, we're going to be looking at the, at the second premise, beginning in verse 33. Uh, so let's read that, then I'll pray, then we'll jump in. Verse 33 and 34 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy and love, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truths of Scripture. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to to internalize this, to more than just know it, but to know it. And I pray, Lord, that it would, it would change our lives as we chew on three premises and three promises from your word uh, in, the, in Paul's emotional climax here, Lord, this, this spiritual mountaintop. I pray, Lord, that this would speak to our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, before we, before we jump in, I'm reminded that, or I remembered that I did not bring the other new members onto the stage, uh, which we normally do. So we only had the, the three members that were uh, being baptized. So after service, or at the end of service, I'm going to ask the new members to come and stand at the front, okay, so that you can greet them. But for those that are in the service that were not in the baptistry that are joining, please forgive me for that, all right? <clears throat> Verse 33, Paul asks the question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Remember that in the first premise, in the first promise, he reassures us that no one can stand against us. But that doesn't mean that no one's going to try. I mean, he asks the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, Paul, lots of people can be against us. Lots of people can try to stand against us. Lots of people can oppose us, can reject us, can harm us, can come against us. But Paul's premise is, who are they? What do they matter? God is for you. It doesn't matter if anyone's against you. So he reassures us that, that no one can stand against us, but people will try. And in the second premise and promise, Paul expounds upon what it might look like for someone to stand against us. Namely, that they would bring a charge against us, that they would accuse us of something. Now, biblically, Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brothers. R.C. Sproul says, the principal work of Satan in the life of the believer is not temptation, though he is engaged in that, 
his chief work is accusation. Here's what Revelation 12:10 says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan goes before God and points at God's elect, literally God's chosen people, the saints, you and I, he goes before God and he, he looks at us and, and he points to us. He says, see God, see your people, see what they've done. The enemy's scheme is to discourage and defame and slander and mock in order to diminish the glory of God. You and I are image bearers and in Christ, we are his people. And in an attempt to defame God, in an attempt to, to diminish his glory, the accuser points at you and I and says, see what they've done? He doesn't have to make stuff up. We give him plenty of fodder. He points to what we've done and says, see, these are your people. Because he desires to dishonor and reduce or diminish God's glory. But it's not as though God doesn't know. It's not as though God is up there in ignorance and Satan points to us and God goes, oh, I didn't see that coming. No, it's not that God doesn't know. It's that God intervenes on our behalf, just as he did in Zechariah's vision. In this vision of Zechariah, prophetic vision, Satan is standing at the right side of Joshua, the high priest, and he's ready to accuse Joshua. And instead of, 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 of smacking his forehead and going, well, man, that's what a bummer. God instead rebukes Satan and affirms Joshua. It reads here in Zechariah 3, 3 through 4. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That was a prophetic vision and it's a foretaste of what the Lord Jesus Christ does on our behalf or what God does on our behalf in Christ. Satan accuses us of our sin, but God cleanses us from our sin by the blood of the lamb. He removes, as it were, the filthy garments and clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. Now, Satan is not the only one who accuses us. Blinded by him and under his power, the leaders of Israel frequently followed the course of Satan in accusing Jesus of all kinds of misconduct. And ultimately, they crucified him under the false accusation of blasphemy. John 5, 18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That would be a blasphemous 
charge, or that, that would be blasphemous if it were not true that Jesus is in fact God. But Jesus knew who he was. And he could say with confidence, which of you convicts me of sin? Think about the audacity that one of you would look at, at, at any kind of tribunal, at any kind of authority, and say, how could you accuse me of any sin? Certainly, you could be convicted of sin. And yet Jesus looks at these people who are accusing him of all kinds of false accusations, charging him with false accusations, and he says, which of you convicts me of any sin? Because Jesus knows who he is. He knows that he was sent by the Father. He knows that he was sent only to do the Father's will, and that is, in fact, all that he did was the Father's will, and he knew that the Father would vindicate him. Christian, his confidence was that, the, it was that his Father would be his vindication. He knew why he came. He knew that he came to be delivered over to his enemies. He knew that he was going to be falsely accused and, and, and falsely uh, uh, tried and, and found guilty and crucified. But he knew that his father would vindicate him and be his defense, which he did in his resurrection. Romans 1.4 says, and to the one, uh, excuse me, um, says, and he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus knew that he would be vindicated, and the resurrection is the vindication of God, that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, and does what he says he does. And he came from the Father. Isaiah's prophecy must have been going through Jesus' mind as he was Facing his accusers, Isaiah prophesies this. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord helps me. He, who, who, who will declare me guilty? When the judge helps you, when the judge is on your side, how could anyone possibly land a charge against you? Who has any chance of winning in that court when the judge stands on your behalf? And so Jesus was right to have the kind of confidence that he could say, who will convict me of any sin? Who indeed? Now, you know, it's one thing to talk about Jesus, but what about us? Because you and I are guilty of sin. None of us in this room could stand before a tribunal, before any kind of authority, and say, I am without sin. So it's one thing to talk about Jesus being, being vindicated. He lived a sinless, perfect life. But what about us? Remember I said that when, when Satan accuses us, he doesn't have to make stuff up. We give him plenty of fuel for that fire. We are, in fact, wicked, and God does in fact cleanse us from sin and removes our filthy garments. I want to unpack that just a little bit for you this morning. I referred before, when we were in Romans chapter 4, of the doctrine of imputed righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That word counted is also translated credited or reckoned. 
or imputed. God credits us, he credits our account with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The perfect righteousness of Christ, which allowed him to say with confidence, who can convict me of any sin, that righteousness is transferred to our account so that everyone who recognize, recognizes their sin and agrees with me when I say that none of us could stand before a tribunal and say, who could convict me of sin? Every one of us who says, yep, that's me, I'm the sinner. Everyone who recognizes their sin and calls upon Jesus for forgiveness in repentance is made righteous in the divine court we receive Christ's perfection imputed righteousness this is not a denial that Christians still sin it's not saying that we don't wrestle with our flesh but it is saying unequivocally that in Christ God sees you as righteous perfect just like his son that is what it means when Paul says that he justifies you he makes a legal declaration that you sinner are not guilty your filthy garments as it were are removed and you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So Satan can accuse you all he wants, and people can accuse you all they want, but in God's court, you are righteous. If this seems too good to be true, it's because we lack the capacity to understand the magnitude and the magnificence of the gospel. And the tendency is to reduce the magnitude and the magnificence to our capacity. But what we need instead is to ask the Holy Spirit to see it for what it really is. And it is remarkable what Jesus has done for us. And what God by his grace has done for us through his son Jesus Christ. We are made right with God. We are counted righteous, not by our merit, but by Christ's. God is the judge, and he helps us. And if God helps us, if God makes a verdict for us on our behalf, who on earth could possibly land a charge against us? That is Paul's point in his second premise. We can echo with Christ, who can convict us of sin? In the divine court, who can convict us of sin? The only one that can convict us of sin is God, and he has already made a declaration of not guilty. And why is this true? John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christian, the Lamb of God who takes away, takes away the sin of the world 
has taken your sin away. Do you fully grasp that? Do you really get that? That Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has taken away your sin. And not just the sin that you've already committed, but the sin that you ever will commit. All of this. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought that my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Now, some of us struggle more with the accusation of our own conscience than we do with the accusation of Satan or even with other people. Some Christians look back and regret on their lives and the sins that they committed and it leaves them with painful guilt and shame. This is where identity in Christ is so important. You know, it's only been in the last decade that I've really grappled with identity in Christ. Who you are in Christ, who he has made you is so essential to your life here and now. Because so many of us still come before God with our tails between our legs. We don't recognize that in Jesus Christ, we have been given the righteousness of the perfect son of God. And we've been invited to come into the father's presence as beloved children. And many of us come into the father's presence the way that we do with our moms and dads or the principal at our school when we've done something wrong. We stand in the presence, but we stand quaking and shaking and afraid of the consequences of our actions. Some of you are prisoner in an open cage because your focus is behind you. Your focus is on what you have done and you have done wicked things Make no mistake. But your focus is on what is behind you and not on the open door that is in front of you. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. So know Jesus and know the truth and be set free. But many of you, many of us, many Christians are looking backwards and all we see are the bars of sin and shame and guilt. And they are rightly ours because we did the things that we regret. But what Jesus has done is open the door to release us into freedom from guilt and shame. Some people do not feel worthy of walking in freedom. But listen, you don't do anybody any good by sulking in that cell of shame. No one ever added to their justification by sulking. The Bible calls us to three essential tasks. Believe, repent, and follow Jesus. There's no sulking in there. Is there a place to confess sin and acknowledge that your sin is as wicked as the Bible 
says that it is, that is essential. But then what? What do you do once you confess your sin? We do need to grieve it. The Bible tells us, talks to us about grief. What comes after grief? The Bible calls true grief over sin, godly grief, and says that it leads us forward. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief, a genuine Holy Spirit-inspired repentance moves us forward. It's godly grief. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Some of you may be alive in Christ, but you are killing yourselves every day. You believe the gospel enough to be saved, but you wonder how you could really be acceptable to God after what you've done. Your life feels powerless and ineffectual, and there's good reason for that. There's nothing for you to achieve in the kingdom locked in the cell of sin and shame. No power in the Christian life and effectiveness in ministry and in the kingdom is found following Jesus, not sulking in the cell. Life and joy and peace evade you because life and joy and peace is found in godly sorrow that leads you to follow Jesus out of the cell of shame. You don't find life and peace in sulking. Shocking, right? You feel like you don't deserve to be joyful and peaceful and at ease. And it has the appearance of piety. This worldly grief, this sulking, has an appearance of piety. It would seem as though you are more righteous than others because you sulk, you, you, you continually, perpetually grieve. And we ought to watch our lives. And daily we ought to confess our sin. But there's a difference between watchfulness, confessing sin, and living in worldly grief and regret. It has an appearance of piety, but the Bible calls it worldly grief. And bitterness and isolation and selfishness are the fruit of a mind that is filled with worldly grief. The problem is that you don't fully comprehend what God has done for you. And even if you've been born again, you doubt your worthiness to stand before him as a beloved child. And your concept of childhood is is like you and that parent that your knees quake when you've done something wrong. And you, you fear, what is the consequence? How is dad gonna respond? You know, I love to repeat this quote every time I get a chance. Religion says, oh, I messed up. My dad's gonna kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. 
I better call my dad. How do, how do you relate to your heavenly father? When you mess up, you feel like, oh, he's going to crush me. I'm afraid to, to be near him. I don't want to open his word. I don't want to be with his people. I don't want to pray. I want to go to in, into his presence because he's going to be angry at me and he's going he's to smite me. Or do you go the way that he says that he invites us to in Hebrews 4.16? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Is that your concept? Do you understand the invitation that is set before you in Christ to draw near to the throne of grace in your time of need? You know, certainly God disciplines those he loves. God does not snicker at your sin, Christian. God, God does not ignore your sin. God disciplines us because he's a good father. And that's what good fathers do. They discipline sin. But here's the difference. When God disciplines his beloved child, he's not exacting revenge. He is making you more like Christ. He is shaping you into the image of his son. But what you need to know is that he counts you perfectly righteous. And nothing you do, nothing you could ever do, would change that. If it has ever been true, it will always be true. Paul says in verse 33, it is God who justifies who is to condemn. Although Satan and others accuse you, God does not. And if God does not accuse you, if God does not condemn you, what else is there? Who has authority to bring a charge against God's elect? I think about the adulterous woman, the woman caught in adultery who was trapped by the religious leaders of her day and used. Her life was, was nothing but a ploy for them. And they pull her out and they're ready to stone her to death. And is she guilty? She was caught in the act. And yet Jesus says, once he deals with his accusers, he says to her, where are they? Where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? And she says, they're gone. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. What a great summation of the gospel. What a great picture of what, of what Jesus invites you to. Where are your accusers? Were you guilty? You were caught in the act. Where are your condemners? Who's going to condemn you? I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. It is God who justifies who is to condemn. When Paul says God justifies us, he means he declares us not guilty. That's a legal term, justification. He declares us not guilty. Justification 
is not the same as pardon. Now realize that in great is thy faithfulness, there is that lyric, pardon from sin. And maybe when that was written, it had a different sense than it has today. When we think about someone being pardoned, what is implied is that they are guilty. A pardon today, a legal pardon today, is not a declaration of innocence. It is a removal of punishment. Now, somehow, I think that Christians have come to believe that what God does is declare a pardon for us, but that's not what he does. You see, in a pardon, you escape the punishment, but you remain guilty. When Paul says that God justifies He says that he declares us not guilty. It's a removal of our guilt and an imputation of Christ's righteousness. He deals with the guilt, not just with the punishment. I believe that this is important, and I think that this is one of those things that keeps Christians from living effectual lives. They walk around thinking they've just been pardoned. I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel, and God hates me, but in Christ, he spared me from hell. I've been pardoned. That is not the biblical picture of salvation. Instead, the biblical picture of salvation is a legal declaration that you are righteous. You have been given the righteousness of God's perfect son, Jesus Christ. We were guilty, there's no denying that, but Jesus stepped in to take on our guilt, to bear our punishment. Isaiah 53, five says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. His death serves as a substitutionary atonement for sin. You were guilty. You deserved to be crushed by God. You deserved his wrath. And Jesus stood in your place and took that upon himself. And by faith, as a gift of grace, when you believe... Jesus' perfection is credited to your account. Christian, you are not guilty. Who could convict you of any sin? Shall we go on sinning? That grace may abound? Paul asked that question. Should we keep on sinning? Because, hey, it just makes God even that much more gracious. Should we continue to live in sin. All my sin has been forgiven. Should we continue to sin? Well, Christians don't think that way, at least not for long. We may have the thought. It may occur to us once we truly understand and believe the gospel, it may occur to us there's literally nothing I could do to be separated from God, which we'll look at next week. But a Christian who has the Holy Spirit doesn't think that way for long. The Holy Spirit says, wait a second, Paco. Hold tight. 
I'm making you like Christ. You've been declared righteous. Now I'm going to make you like Christ. Nevertheless, God's verdict is final. And God's verdict is authoritative. If you're in Christ, God justifies you. Who is to condemn? Now that's the second premise. Here's the second promise as we wrap up this morning. Christ Jesus, Paul says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I love Kent Hughes's powerful comments when he says, if accusations are brought against us, we need not fear, for the charges are silenced, ready, by the upraised, pierced hands of our intercessor. Someone brings an accusation against you. Jesus stands up, shows his, raises his pierced hands. He's got his pierced side. He's got his pierced feet. He says, no, they are covered by my blood. And he's standing at the right hand of God in authority, exercising dominion over the cosmos. And he effectively is interceding for his elect. I think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He boldly proclaims the gospel to his fellow Jews. And they responded to, to Stephen with intense rage. Luke records that they gnashed their teeth in rage at him. The situation was about to turn violent. And Stephen turns his eyes toward heaven and he beholds the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God in glory. And the crowd rushes at him and they stone him to death. While the earthly court vehemently cast their judgment upon Stephen in accusations and then eventually with stones, the divine judge was in session and Jesus Christ stood in Stephen's defense at God's right hand. And that, brothers, is all that matters. That is all that matters. The one with ultimate authority to judge has already declared his verdict about you. And now, Christ is bearing witness on your behalf. I just want you to think about this. You believe the gospel. You've been born again, filled with the Holy Spirit. You've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And then you fall on your face in sin. And you wonder, how does God feel about you? Jesus is standing in your defense, saying, my blood covers that sin. Christ is bearing witness on your behalf that you are clothed in a righteousness that is not your own. It has nothing to do with you. It's not your merit that causes God to look upon you with favor, but rather the merit of Jesus Christ. There is therefore 
now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, since you are no longer under God's condemnation, here are four things that I want you to chew on and meditate upon and drive them deep into your heart. And you might have to watch this again, or you might have to pull this transcript from our website, which we make available every week. I just want, I want you to give me your attention. I want you to, to, to listen to these four truths. If you are in Christ, you do not need to earn God's love and approval. It has already been given to you in full. And Jesus Christ is the full demonstration of that. As if it was possible for you to ever earn God's love and favor, you don't need to. It is given to you as a gift of grace. Number two, you do not need to defend yourself against your accusers. God will be your defense. It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Who on earth has anything to say about a person who has been vindicated, who has been justified, who has been declared not guilty by the only judge that matters? You do not need to defend yourself against your accusers. Let God be your vindication. Number three, you are completely forgiven of your sin. There is no partial forgiveness. That's what the Jews did in the, in the law. That was the point of the law. Every year, year after year after year after year, making atonement. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ died once for all. There was one sacrifice, and that becomes effectual in your life. It is credited to your account the moment that you trust in Jesus. There is no partial forgiveness. You are forgiven fully. And finally, it is removed, it is canceled, it is erased. And finally, you are free to leave your cell of shame and follow Jesus in his mission in the world. As a delivered sinner, delivering sinners, the only way possible through the powerful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has changed you and you will take that gospel to the nations and it will change them to the praise of his glory. Amen? As we turn our attention now to communion, let's ask the Lord to examine our hearts and show us if there are still areas where the balm of the gospel needs to be applied to heal and to soothe. There may be some areas of shame and regret in your heart. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. Maybe you need the Lord to take these next moments to apply the truth of the gospel directly to that today and turn around, turn you around and show you that the cell of shame 
is open and you may freely exit. You may freely walk out in Christ Jesus. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. Now, you should be holding in your hands the symbolic representation of what it took for you to be made right with God and set free from sin and condemnation. And if you have not taken hold of this internally, then I ask that you put the elements down, that you let it pass. But my real invitation this morning is that you would take hold of it not only with your hands, but with your heart. That you would believe the gospel, that you would place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that you would be born again and be declared righteous. Father, we love you. We thank you. We give you praise and glory and honor. The gospel is remarkable. It's higher than we could possibly attain. And yet it is not far from us. It's not hard to comprehend. I pray, Lord, that, that if there are those that do not know Jesus, that today would be a day of rebirth for them, a day of faith, a day of repentance, a day of hope. And for those who are walking around thinking they've been pardoned, bearing their guilt, even if escaping the punishment, that today would be a day of, of enlightenment. Lord, that the imputed righteousness of Jesus is credited to their account and they stand before you and we stand before you as beloved children of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you are blessed.